Good morning. Sure is wonderful to be together. I want to I wanna start off this morning by playing a little game together. So um, now for, for here for a minute, uh, I'm going to ask you some questions and I'm asking you to answer back. So um, I'm going to call this game Expense or Investment. All right, so listen closely and you tell me if the things I'm about to list are an expense or an investment. All of the accountants are getting excited for once. All right. Eating out, expense or investment? Expense. All right, very good. Family dog, expense or investment? That's right. See, I think early service was trying to just, like, the kids get a good experience and all that. No, dog, it's an expense, 100%. All right, your car, for sure. All right, your house. Okay, all right, skewing a little more towards investment. Another easy one, your 401k or your retirement account, for sure. All right, some of you are, uh, some of you are, are employers, so I'll ask this. An employee, expense or investment? Oh, early service was way nicer to employees. All right, for the elders, the ministry staff, expense or investment? All right, thanks. That's what I was hoping for. That's what I was hoping for. Okay, now, now, now here's the one I'm, I'm getting at. Your tithe, expense or investment? That's, that's kind of a tough one. Um, I think it's an investment. I, th- I, th- I think y'all are right. But, but how we think about that matters a lot. You see, there's a, a subset of teachers under the umbrella of Christianity who preach this health and wealth gospel. And under this model, a tithe would be an investment with a certain type of expected return. Under that model, um, a tithe is kind of like a you got to spend money to make money type of deal. And so you give some to God, and what do you expect? You expect to receive some in return. We give, and then we expect to receive back dividends on that investment. Is that biblical? I certainly don't think so. But to be honest, at first glance, when we look at today's text, it kind of feels like it is. Let's look at it closely. Malachi 3, 6 through 12. The text says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then... Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now I think, uh, especially with a text like we have today, we need to be big on application. So in light of this passage, I've got some guys in the back. We are going to pass around trays until God acts. And you give, and we're going to give and give until your bank accounts are full, and there's no more cancer. Do we not have enough faith? Does it not act, does it not work that way? 
Is it possible something else is going on? Allow me to be very clear. I do not believe God will reward a financial gift that you might make to the church today by returning your money back with interest. I don't think he's going to improve your health because of your tithing. I don't even think that there's some sort of intangible karma-like energy that sometimes we believe in that he's going to modulate because of your giving. To take this text and apply it that way to our context I think would be inappropriate. But there's a lot to learn from this passage. There's so much behind the idea of, of tithing and what it was for and what it means. There are fundamental principles based on God's character that I believe matter very much today and matter very much to, to, to all of us. You see, our relationship with our things is still a very dangerous relationship, and how we interact with them matters. I want to start by unpacking this text in their context. Y'all remember, we are in the book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi was the, the last prophet, the last uh, word from God, I guess you could say, before John the Baptist would arrive on the scene some 400 years later. Ba uh, Israel had just returned from Babylonian captivity, and they were back in the promised land, and they were really excited about this prospect, and then they looked around and they saw that things weren't going like they thought things should be going. Things weren't going like that at all. And what we have is this back and forth between them and God in the book of Malachi where God honestly steps in and provides them some answers that I don't think they deserve to hear. In his grace, he steps in and, and, and explains himself when he didn't owe them an explanation. And he starts the book of Malachi with this powerful statement that we looked at several weeks back. And God says, I have loved you. And over and over again, we found ourselves going back to that first announcement that God make. Because often like the Israelites, our first response is, oh really, how have you loved us? And God says, I have loved you because I chose you. And, and as they challenge that, they, they, they don't feel that, God steps in and says several things. He says, you despise my name. That's one of the reasons things aren't going the way that you think they should. You despise my name. How have we despised your name, they said, because you bring these paltry offerings to me. Because, because you offer me your secondhand stuff. And the world looks at that and they say, oh, that's the type of God they serve, someone who will take their leftovers. And they kind of ignore that, and God looks at them, and he says, I don't accept your offerings for other reasons. You want to know why? And they say, they say, why? He says, because you're in the middle of spiritual adultery. You know what broken relationships look like, and yet you continue to bring all of these other gods into my temple, and you worship these other things, and you mix these other gods with this religion, with this focus that's supposed to be on me, and I don't accept your offerings because of that. And so they look at God, and they ignore all of that, and they say, yeah, but, yeah, but God, God, it looks to me like as you interact with the world, you reward evil people. Where's the God of justice? And God says, oh, oh, you forgot I loved you. I love you too much to give you the justice that you deserve. Instead, there's going to be a season of refining. And God talks about that refining fire where he's going to take his people and he's going to purify them. And he's going to give them what they need, not what they want. And after that refining will come justice. And that lands us this week at the fifth accusation where God steps up to them and, and in light of all that's happening, he says to them, return to me. And they say, what do you mean, God, return to you? 
It's like they still don't get it. And God says, okay, let's get real practical. You're robbing me. How are we robbing you? And he says, in your tithes. In your tithes. In verse 6, we start with a, a powerful verse. I used it a little bit last week. I think it links the two texts together. In verse 6, God starts off by saying, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God certainly doesn't change, and his love has been the constant, steady thing that's followed us all throughout this book of Malachi. And here we see, as he introduces this next idea, not only is that what prevents them from, them, them specifically from being judged, it has, it has gone on for generations. This is a generational unfaithfulness that we're looking at. In fact, in verse 7 we read, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. In other words, God says, I could have been judging your fathers and your father's fathers just as much as I could have been judging you, but I, the Lord, don't change. I, the Lord, don't change, and I, I love you, and so instead of doing what I should do, I'm asking you to do something. I'm asking you to return to me. Now, that idea of returning to me is a powerful one, one that I think took the Israelites off guard a little bit. In fact, that would have been a phrase that would have brought their minds back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Deuteronomy 4, verses 25 through 31, we see this, this idea laid out of what was going to happen to Israel. And, and it very clearly talks about when Israel rejects God and turns to other gods, what the result of that would be. The result was going to be exile. The result was going to be curses. And then we get to verse 29, and the text makes another prediction. In Deuteronomy 4, 29 through 31, we read that after all of that, from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So you see, Israel is sitting here in the promised land, and they're looking back over their history, and they're saying, yeah, there was a time when we were living in rebellion, and all of those things that God talked about happened, but here we are, and we're back home. We have returned to God, and God says, oh, no, no, no. You're confusing some physical realities with spiritual realities. You may be back in the land, but you haven't returned to me yet. So, so you can understand their confusion. They, they, they simply don't see it. They're thinking something different than is actually happening. And so God goes on to expose their hearts, to show them where they're missing. He says, will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. You are robbing me. That's a scary thing to hear come out of the mouth of God. In fact, that's a pretty loaded statement. Can you steal something from someone if it doesn't belong to them? Well, certainly not. Uh, behind this statement is the idea that Israel had forgotten, an idea that comes from Leviticus 25, 23, where God says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. We serve a powerful God who created everything and every single thing that the Israelites have and every single thing that we have comes directly from him. It was his. 
And this is a fundamental and foundational principle that I think they missed over and over again. The land belonged to God. And as their generations passed through this promised land, they were meant to simply be temporary stewards of what was God's. And their stewardship was shared with them with contingencies. And one of those was tithing. The Israelites stole from God when they took things that belonged to him and used them on themselves. Now, I think we need to unpack the idea of tithing just a little bit because often we hear of a tithe and our mind goes to several different things. We think of passing the trays. We think of the church budget. We think of the things that we spend money on. We think about buildings and staff salaries. And, and maybe we think about um, some of the ways that tithes are abused. We think about the wealth of, of certain denominations and how they've built up this empire based on what their people have given. You might even think about the... the um, the, the wealth of, of Israel and the, the, the fancy decorations and the gold that was put into the, into the temple. And, and we look at that and we're uncomfortable with it. We've, we've actually worked hard to, to stay away from that. How were they commanded to tithe and why? Was it just about collecting wealth? There was a lot of significance to tithing for Israel. In Leviticus 27, it outlines the laws of tithing. It specifies that a tenth of everything that the land produced was going to go to God. We see uh, in Leviticus 27, 30 through 33, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is of the Lord's. It's holy to God. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. In other words, you could uh, redeem some of this uh, seed of the land or fruit of the trees by buying it, but it costs you 20% more. Okay? And if uh, every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal that passes under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord, one shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. So in other words, of the animals, you could exchange like for like under certain circumstances, but whatever was the, every, every tenth animal that passed under the staff, it belonged to God's. And that you couldn't redeem or buy back in exchange for money. It was his. So, so we have these, these rules laid out, but there we don't really see much of why. Well, that starts to unfold a little bit in Numbers. There was one really big reason in Numbers 18 that we see that a tithe was important because the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi was not given a physical inheritance. The tribe of Levi was actually supported from the tithes of the people. In verse 24, we read, For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. So we have this group of people, one-twelfth of the people, who have been tasked with the responsibility of, of serving in the household of God, and their inheritance was the tithe, not the land. They had no alternate source of income, so they literally depended on this tithe to live. In Deuteronomy 14, we see even more of the purposes of tithing elaborated on. There's a whole lot here. We don't have time to unpack it all, but let's read it real quick. Listen to this picture that God paints. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear your God always. 
And if the way is too long for you that you're not able to carry the tithe when the Lord God blesses you because the place is too far from you which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. And at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So we see here through the collective sharing of the tithe, the Levites who had no land to support themselves were supported, and the widows and the orphans and the foreigners who had no land were cared for. We see that in addition to this people care in verse 23, it helped mold and press the hearts of the people towards God. It says, through the tithing, they would learn to fear the Lord always. We see in verse 26 that it gave them cause to rejoice. And so it's interesting that the picture painted here is is not one of their tithe just drifting off and disappearing. It's their tithe being something to celebrate. It was used for a feast. It was something good that they shared together, that they experienced together. And so I look at this passage and I think that sounds like a pretty good way to use a tithe. That sounds like a pretty awesome experience to share with your fellow brother and sister Israelites. That sounds like a pretty amazing experience to be a part of. So what in the world were they doing with their tithes? I don't know. The text doesn't say. But I think we know what we might be doing. We're kind of inclined when we make a little bit to save it for a rainy day. Or maybe if there's a little bit left over, you can turn a little bit of a profit and get some things that you need. In fact, maybe the, maybe the harvest wasn't quite what they were expecting this year, so they thought they would save some for this year, and, but next year they're going to be sure and tithe. Maybe under the surface they were a little bit afraid. Afraid to eat it. Afraid to share it. I wonder, had they lost their trust in God? You know, we don't know for sure, but I have two observations. The first is this. The fact that this text frames their lack of tithing as a robbery lends me to think that they had some very selfish motives. I think they wanted these things for themselves, and they did not want to share it. But the way the text also um, unfolds things, I believe that they had stopped trusting in God. You see in verse 10, God says this, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God challenges them. It's like he says, come on, let's go. Give me what you got. You want to see what I can do? Because I think God understood that somewhere under the surface, they weren't sure that God was going to uphold his end of the bargain. They weren't sure if they withheld a portion of what was rightfully his, if he would really give it back. They weren't confident God was going to take care of them, despite the history that they had. 
despite all they knew about what God had commanded, despite all of the things that they could look back on, and over and over and over again when God had provided and taken care of them, they still weren't sure that they could trust in him. Sound familiar? Malachi is a tremendous reminder of God's promises. God said, I've promised to fill you with delight, but it requires sharing. I've promised to fill you with delight, but it requires that you trust in me. And as we look at this Old Testament concept of tithing, we see that you can't experience the joy of God's blessing without everyone living in the land also being blessed. Now, if you backed up in the text a little bit, I'm not going to read it, but if you remembered our lesson from last week, one verse prior to this, in verse 5, God had said that he was going to judge. And what were the things that God was going to judge? God promised that he would, he, would, uh, he would punish evil, and there were several things listed, but then in the list is those who oppress the hired worker, those who oppress the orphans and the widows, and those who fail to care for foreigners. In other words, those who don't fear God. Every single one of these things happened when they withheld their tithes. They were guilty. You see, at the end of the day, tithing was about trusting God and caring for others. And Israel had stopped doing both. The lessons from Malachi that we have already walked through clearly demonstrate that this was the boat that Israel was in. And this week, we see God step in and say, okay, you've got your priorities really messed up. You keep saying this is me, but it's you. Okay? You, keep, you keep pointing the finger at me, but this is all on you. I love you. But if you want to come back to me, here is the answer. The first step back starts with outward actions. You know, it's only when we, under, when we study the God-given purposes of these actions that we begin to understand why. But sometimes we just need to take a step. And that's what God says. Tithing in and of itself has no saving power. But this is an action that leads to heart change. It caused them to fear the Lord. And it's an action that leads to social justice. It, it allowed those who needed to be taken care of be taken care of. And those things have tremendous power for good. So we turn the camera then on us and we ask the question, what about me? Do we need to return? You know, for this moment in history, the welfare of our nation has led to tremendous wealth and prosperity for many of us. And I wonder if in our prosperity, we still trust him. In our prosperity, do we still care for others? You see, wealth is a, a challenging thing. It causes us to be arrogant. It causes us to develop this insatiable desire for, for more and as we do so, it's so easy to slip away from a posture of trust to a selfish one where we think that we can provide for ourselves a posture of pride and a posture of despise towards those we should be taking care of. We stop caring for them and we prioritize ourselves instead. Church, it may be that we also need to return to God 
It may be that our prosperity has caused us to shift our trust away from him. It may be that the weight of our prosperity rests primarily on the shoulders of the oppressed, just like Israel. It may be that our wealth is secured through inequality and others going without. And if that is the case, and I believe that it is, we need to tread lightly against a passage like this and not dismiss it as some sort of Old Testament, Old Covenant living that doesn't apply to us. I believe like Israel needed to return, we need to return, and God looks at us and he says return to me and I will return to you and we ask the question how how God shall we return there are certainly things in this text that don't apply to us today we no longer live under the Old Testament covenant with its particular blessings and curses we haven't been commanded to give the way that they were in the Old Testament I mean there are strong examples I believe that it is wise and expected for us to do so We don't live in Canaan or in anticipation of returning there. We don't have any expectation of land or an earthly kingdom or a restoration of any sort of earthly kingdom. That's not what we are looking for. While there may be a whole subset of things that don't apply to us, there are also numerous things that do. I have four things I want to point out. The first is that God desires for us to trust him. God desires for all people to be given basic human dignities. God desires that you would experience his blessing. And God understands that outward choices impact inward changes. So let's start with the first. God's desire for us to trust in him. He, he cares for us. He loves us. And we can, we can take that to the bank. God has never shifted on this. In fact, it's, it's what he has always wanted is for us to be taken care of and from the beginning of time satan has slipped in and said god is not sharing everything with you he's withholding something back from you you can't trust him you can't fully trust him there's more to this picture and god says no that couldn't be the case at all in verse 10 he says bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house put me to the test says the lord of hosts over and over again throughout history god has been put to the test and he has never failed church But we look into the New Testament and the same teachings prevail. Jesus looked at the people who are anxious about so many things and he said, but if God clothes the grass of the field which is alive tomorrow, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Don't you see his track record for these things of no importance? But here you are, the crown jewel of his creation, thinking that he won't take care of you. You can trust him. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul writes, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Not to set your hope on riches, but to set your hope on God. He's the provider. He's the one that gives us the things that we are to enjoy. God can be trusted And God's desire is for all people to be given basic human dignities. In Malachi, we see that judgment would be cast upon those who who stepped on the downtrodden. But as we step into the New Testament, we see the exact same thing is true. Jesus in Matthew 25, 34 through 36 said in his parable, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And I was naked, and you clothed me. And I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came to me. 
People care was a, was a central element of Jesus' teaching and Jesus' behavior. This was important to him, but it was important all throughout the New Testament. Paul wrote of his own personal eagerness to remember the poor in Galatians 2.10. He commended the church in Rome to give to those to, in need in, in Romans 12.13. Other New Testament writers wrote about it. You're familiar with James 2.15-16? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body. What good is that? Or 1 John three seventeen. but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's a rhetorical question. It doesn't. That's not how it works. You see, people care sits at the core of the character of God, so it shouldn't surprise us that this is something he desires. He also cares about you, and he desires for you to be blessed. Now, this one may feel a little bit surprising. God does want you to be blessed, just not in the health and wealth and prosperity sort of way that we sometimes think. Let's look closer at 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, the further context of what Paul wrote. I read verse 17. It said, for, as the, for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In this text are so many things. We see the primary problem with wealth. It creates a misplaced trust. We see the correct placement of God as the provider of all. Those are two things we already looked at. We see further the right attitude towards material things. Those who are wealthy should be generous and ready to share, the text tells us. And we see the result of the right attitude. Taking hold of that which is truly life. Truly life. Church, we're talking more than just the ground growing an abundant harvest of wheat. That's what the Israelites were looking for. God has offered us so much more than he offered them. This is way better than the Old Testament blessings. God said, what you really want I have to offer, true life, and it's life eternal. That's how he wants to bless you. And God knows that if you're going to be changed on the inside in a way that you can take hold of that, it is going to require that you make some outward choices. So why give? Because this outward, Im, uh, outward action impacts the heart. Back in, in the Old Testament, God looked at tithing in, in Deuteronomy, and what did he say? Through the process of tithing, you will learn to fear me, and you will learn to celebrate me. And in that regard, it is still true. Giving, giving helps our heart let go of that death grip we have on our things and, and turn our eyes towards God. So should you tithe? I think it's wise for us all to be regularly giving. But we do need to understand why. Church, it's not a worldly investment. It's a heavenly one. It shows the world where our trust is. And it reminds us who can be trusted. It gives us the opportunity to provide for those who otherwise might go without now, this can take the form of giving to Oldham Lane, but it can also take the form of giving directly to a need. In fact, if I'm being real honest, that's what we see happening in the New Testament. 
Either way, we should stand prepared to give generously. We should stand prepared to trust in God, and we need to be caring for others. If you're struggling, if you're struggling to fully trust in Him, may I suggest that you first look at your material wealth and discern how it is upsetting your priorities. Don't let the wealth of this foreign nation we live in woo you away from the only kingdom that will exist for all eternity. I'm so thankful for each of you who have been here today. I do have to admit this is a really generous congregation. I think you have given well both collectively in the um, contribution that we take up each week. That's, that's published and you can look at it. But you also give well privately and that's not seen by many and in many cases seen by none. And I, I commend you for that. But don't look at our budget and become filled with pride such that we undo the good that is done from giving. It may be that today is the day for you to return. You've thought you were there, but as you've weighed today's lesson, you've realized you were not. If you believe in Jesus, but have not been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, we stand prepared to baptize you today. If you would like to further study, we stand ready to share with you the reason for our hope. And if you have slipped, we stand prepared to walk with you as you return. Whatever your need might be, the invitation is open. Come forward as we stand and sing.